since we built a profitable business from the get-go, we just thrived during that time. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Zig Ziglar. Outstanding people have one thing in common, an absolute sense of mission. My guest today, Mike Salguero, has built a career on mission-driven leadership. He's the founder and CEO of ButcherBox, an immensely successful subscription D2C meat business with over half a billion dollars in annual revenue. Mike's also a coach, mentor, and speaker. Mike, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I was like, uh, particularly with entrepreneurs, learning a little bit about the uh, origin story. So what was what was childhood, uh, Mike, like? Where'd you, uh, you... You grew up outside the US, right? I, I was born outside the US. I was born in Paraguay. Um, my father's Uruguayan. My mother's half Colombian, half uh, New Englander. And my parents got divorced when I was four months old. And so my mom moved up to the US to be near her grandparents. So we moved to this small town in uh, Western Massachusetts called Williamsburg, population of 2,000 people. And uh, so I grew up there, uh, youngest of four, have uh, two brothers and a sister. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty good... I mean, the school was across the street from my house. Like It was a very small community. I started a paper route when I was 10 years old, so I'd go deliver 35 papers. Interestingly, I delivered papers to Tracy Kidder, who uh, has written all these books now. Um, his dog bit me when I was a kid, uh, when I was a newspaper guy. But uh, yeah, so I grew up there. And then I had this really interesting upbringing where my mother's parents uh, had a house in Spain. And so we would spend at least a month uh, every summer in Spain. So I had kind of a, you know, a very international upbringing uh, where... My strong Latin roots were well. While my mother never spoke Spanish to me, um, she never let me forget that you know I was South American and I was an immigrant and I came here, and you know that that was always an important part of our of our upbringing and our story. So, were you color inside the lines or not color inside the lines as a kid? Uh, not inside <laughs> the lines as a kid. My my favorite my favorite story of like how I behaved as a kid. I was super, super competitive, like very competitive. Um, that comes from my grandfather, who would even when I was five years old try to like you know beat me at backgammon yeah. or cards or whatever. But uh, when I was in third grade, there's uh, something in my report card that says um, Mike seems to be more interested in finishing the test first rather than getting the questions right. <laughs> so like sounds like something that would have been written on my <laughs> I, I said, well, they knew the material and didn't material. I kind of got it done first. Yeah, that yeah exactly. Like an I, ADD first one. Yeah. yeah. Who cares? <laughs> who cares what the grade is? It's just like, what matters is speed. Um, so uh, as the youngest of four, like my mom didn't have a lot of time to build a lot of rules. So I was definitely um, the most unruly of, of the siblings, you know, where my older brother's like, you had it so easy. I had all these rules and yeah. I didn't. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I definitely didn't think rules applied to me. I definitely constantly wanted to think about things um, differently. Like there must be a different solution than the one that's like right in front yeah. of our face and very, very hyper competitive. Those are good qualities for starting a business and we'll get to that. But so after college, you went into real estate, right? Yeah. So at the tail end of college, uh, well, during college, I worked like basically full time. I went to Boston University. I lived in Boston. I decided that school wasn't very important to me, and because I, you know, worked so fast to get my work done, uh, I decided to get like real, real jobs as well. So I worked as uh, mostly in sales jobs. Um, I worked at all the stadiums. I worked uh, as a prep cook. I, I did a bunch of stuff, and I always wanted to make the city my education. At the tail end of school, I had my first entrepreneurial experience, um, which was St. Patrick's Day of 2002. I created a. It was a white T-shirt. It had a green shamrock on it, and it said Boston MA. And I bought 200 of these and had like had a box over my shoulder. So bought 200, bought them for five dollars, sold them for ten in on St. Patrick's Day weekend, and you know made a thousand bucks. I was like, wow, this is this is a great yeah. like hmm, entrepreneurship sounds like a good way to make money. Um, and so I set off on a path to be an entrepreneur. And my first stop in that journey was to get sales experience. Uh, and yeah, I went to a real estate office to do rentals and sales. 
and you know learned how to sell in this case sell people on the apartments that they were going to live in so you and i first met i think might have well you'll tell me if it was your next venture it was a custom ink custom made um, yeah, but custom yes. made right sorry yeah. no. custom makes the custom make is a t-shirt thing yeah, yeah, yeah. i wish i started that that would have <laughs> been cool <laughs> uh yeah you wouldn't have had all those learnings so how did you get connected uh, with Custom Made? Uh, and tell me a little bit about because you've had these two parallel experiences, right? That was the VC growth journey, which yes. it, which is an interesting moment in time as we watch what happens to to sort of those companies. But give everyone sort of a quick recap about how that happened, what you learned, what the track was. Yeah, yeah. So um, you basically, I went from real estate rentals and sales, and I met my co-founder for Custom Made. He was in the, in that office, so that's where I met him. Uh, then I decided that I didn't know what I was doing and I needed to get a real job. Um, so I went and worked for three years at a real estate developer, um, like a you know thousand person company doing larger deals, which helped me with project management and financial analysis and stuff. And I got my MBA at night because they paid for that. And at the tail end of that, so this is 2008. And you probably uh, pay attention to those classes, I'm guessing. Not much, not no? much. Same thing, same thing. Uh, <laughs> The number one lesson I learned in business school was that in business school they always have you do group work. Yeah. And they it, like the the secret fact is nobody, well, I'd go into these groups and nobody took the time to say, "Okay, who's in charge here?" And so that would just be my first question. The group would get together, I'm like, "Okay, who's in charge here?" No one? Okay, I'll be in charge. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, and then like everything works seamlessly. And you don't assign yourself anything. So that's yeah. perfect. Well, I mean, other than running yeah. the thing. Yeah. But yes. Um, and that really helped uh reinforce kind of like, you know, what would become a career of uh being a CEO, being a leader, et cetera. But so at the in 2008, the economy's collapsing. My friend Seth and I were, were just trying to find something to run or start or do. We were looking at real estate. We were looking at billboards. We were looking at you know buying things. We were looking at a whole bunch of stuff. You were already unemployable, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, and we, I, my job at um, JPI, the place I worked, was to send offer letters out to like people who owned land and just try to get deals together. So we just started. I just started doing the same thing, but for our personal stuff. Like, like let's get something going. And one of the things that we sent out was for this website, custommade.com, which was started by a woodworker in 1996. And it was like, hey, we're interested in purchasing your website. Would you sell? And I never heard back from him. And then I got laid off in August of 2008. I was trying to get laid off because I wanted to collect unemployment and figure out what was next. And like three days after I got laid off, this guy who I'd written to well before was like, yeah, I'll sell. And that was custommade.com. And so he wanted $140,000 for it, which was four times revenue. Um, so it was a tiny site. And the play was like, first of all, premium domain name, custommade.com. Secondly, like it, it did a ton of traffic. So if you were if you typed in like custom-made bookshelf, custom-made like coffee right. table, it, it was all the long tail of custom yeah, made. It was yeah. just like everything pointed to custommade.com. Been around since 1996. So like Google's algorithm just like really prioritized it and it just showed up everywhere. And when you talk to these woodworkers, it was a woodworker listing site. They're like, I get all my business from that website and I pay $35 a year. And so we called it a shack in Manhattan. We're like, let's just buy it and rehab it. He was a real estate guy too. Like, we're just going to rehab it a little bit. We'll make yeah, it fixer, not... It's a fixer-upper. It's a fixer-upper. Yeah. Like at the time, it was... Um, if you wanted to change your photos, it's 2008. If you want to change your photos, you had to email the webmaster your photos, and then he would charge you via PayPal, and you'd pay, and then he'd like post your photos up, right? A very manual, the, like the way it used Super to work scalable, before yeah. you logged in, and you know. So we're like, this is easy. People can just log in, manage their own stuff, and um, we didn't have one hundred forty thousand dollars, so we um, tied it up with a five thousand dollar check. And um, went into 90 days of due diligence where we ran around town with a BlackBerry, a logo on a BlackBerry, and tried to get people to invest. And this was, you know, the summer of 2008, or I guess the fall of 2008, when the economy uh, had collapsed and uh, very hard to uh, raise money. But we ended up doing it. We ended up raising $500,000, closing on custom made. And that uh, started a seven and a half year journey of um, running that company and making a ton of mistakes. I was 26 when I started it. 
and we we were able to raise five rounds of financing. Uh, so we raised about thirty million dollars by the time we were all said and done. Uh, and it didn't work out, like for a whole host of reasons, which I'm happy to get into. Yeah, I mean, what what was the vision for the thirty million? We so we could just take this, we can scale it, we can automate it. What was yeah, the? Yeah. Was it going to be the subscription, or was it going to be you're going to get a cut of all the commerce? What was the? How did how did you sell the dream? Yeah, so it started as just a subscription play, right? And yeah. so the first two million or million, so we did five hundred thousand, and then we did another million a year later. And all of that was earmarked towards subscription businesses like, hey, it's a subscription business. We'll be able to build a big book of business as long as the website brings in one or two jobs a year. Each person, like they'll resubscribe and like it's a great business. Then we decided that we really wanted to go get like venture capital. And we start make, taking these meetings. So we're meeting with all of the titans of like the Boston venture capital community. And everyone's like, woodworker listing service? Like, no freaking way. We're, we're not touching that thing. Like, we look for disruptive stuff, not woodworking sites. Right. And so we spent a summer, the summer of no, in 2011, just going around and everyone's like, no, no, no. You're like, just getting laughed out of places. And uh, I remember, I remember this very clearly. I was in Polaris, which is one of the VCs in town, and we had this thing called the job board, which basically showed jobs in people's area. Because one of the questions we get from makers is like, "Well, how do I know there's any work on the site?" So we built this like public, kind of classified ads where people are like, "I'm looking for a coffee table in Poughkeepsie, New York," and then we'd yeah. be like, "Hey, let's pull up your zip code. Look, there are all these jobs in your area." So we're in there and I'm like, you see this job board? And the jobs are actually like coming in. They're like, boom, here's a job. Boom, here's a job. I'm like, all we have to do is stand in between that and we can have the largest marketplace for custom stuff ever built. And literally, as soon as I said the word marketplace, like everyone went from no to yes. Everyone. It's like application service provider became cloud, you know, and then it's so much yeah, better. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. As soon like... <laughs> It, it was unbelievable, and it really, it really helped teach me about packaging, but also about how VCs um, are pattern recognizers, and you need to fit into a pattern. So at this time, Airbnb was like crushing it, Uber was crushing it, and they didn't want to miss out on the next one. So um, Google, uh, well, first round capital led the round. Google got involved. Uh, we raised one point nine million, which my co-founder announced at my rehearsal dinner for my wedding. And then six months later, a firm that didn't get in wanted to get in. So we raised another four. And then So was it the marketplace? Was it still marketplace for woodworkers or marketplace for marketplace all for things custom, custom stuff? Yeah. So we had moved from woodworking. Trillion dollar marketplace. Yeah, just yeah. like <laughs> unlimited, unlimited. And you know, the story which which ties in really into my current thing is you know, you could go to Restoration Hardware or some other store and buy a table that was made in some large factory where the workers aren't necessarily treated well. Uh, or you could take a photo of it and have it locally made by a maker where you know the story, like it's, you know, traceable and you can feel good about your purchase instead of feeling guilty about it. And that really resonated. Uh, the problem with the business is that getting something custom is really hard. And the makers are not usually the... First of all, an online platform to do that is really hard. But then the makers are not necessarily the right people to like help inspire you. That's why the whole interior design business is right. a thing is because like there's actually a human being in between. So uh, 2015, it's pretty clear that this isn't going to work. We tried to sell it. We tried to replace Seth and I. Nothing was working. Uh, and ultimately, we went under. We had a little bit of venture debt. So we... We basically went bankrupt, um, friendly foreclosure. And then my co-founder, Seth, and a few other people from the team spun it out and they're still working on it. And they've turned it into a custom jewelry site where they actually do all the work and that model's working. Like it's working great. It's an amazing place to get like a custom... It's a non-venture-backed, high-growth business. Exactly. Yeah, like non-venture-backed. Everyone got wiped off the calf table, including me. And, you know, it was kind of... They got to restart. And so I, this is 2015. So I, you know, I spent seven and a half years kind of trying to push a boulder up the hill and just having it just not work. It just never worked. It's like unbelievable. And my plan was I was going to take a hundred days off and like go do one of those 10 day silent retreats and like go, you know, just lick my wounds or whatever for, for a hundred days. I ended up taking the weekend off because I had been buying grass-fed beef uh, for the previous couple of years. Uh, it started as a 
my wife and I were doing elimination diets and they all said eat grass-fed beef. So I was like, where do you get this stuff? And then that turned into me buying directly from farmers. And then that was like, and at the time, what I was really interested in doing was building a recurring revenue. So a subscription business that was small and sticky so that um, I'd have a nice little lifestyle business on my hands. Like that was the idea. Turn this into the hobby business. Like the Tim Ferriss... You were pretty scarred from the VC high growth. Yeah. I was. And and what I wanted to do was cover my nut um, with something small and then go pursue the next big thing. And and was was it... If you were looking back, was it that you didn't have control and you had to make decisions you had to make? Was it the need to deploy that much capital? Was it all of the above? Like what was why, the real... Why the scarring? Yeah, why the... Well, what what why are the, the deep scars? Maybe D, E, or F that you could tell me about? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious because again, I think, you know, it's funny. You said it and the 37 Signals guys have talked about the, you know, lifestyle business used very pejoratively when most people would be very well served by a right. profitable growing business. But it's not used in a positive terms. So what, you know, what was, what were your learnings for someone looking at the two paths? Yeah. So, I mean, and my co-founder would have a completely different point of view on like what it was like. Right. But I, as the CEO with a board, like, what was it like? So first and foremost, the marketplace business was not a good business. Like the problem was that we, we were really good at selling people on like the vision and we oversold before, like we had product market fit. And then the problem was we got backed into, well, we need to keep this marketplace concept going because we'd already raised money against it versus like, this doesn't work. Like the subscription business or some other offshoot. Right. Is like, Unlike some other entrepreneurs, you didn't realize it wouldn't work and then committed massive fraud, right? Yeah, well, yeah that's true. <laughs> that's the other path that a lot yeah. of people have taken. That's true. And we we did not do that. We um <laughs> We kept raising more money to see if we could make it work. Yeah. And it didn't. Um, so that's one. Um, the second is, you know, the problem, uh, like I, you know, I invest in VCs. Like, I think there's a lot of great VCs out there. I think the Boston community of VCs has really um, risen quite a bit. And there's there's tons of really good ones out there. And they can be really helpful for businesses, especially those that do need a lot of money to get off the ground. But in my experience, my experience with VCs is like, again, they're pattern recognizers. They don't have a lot of time. They've got like 15 deals that they're on the boards of. They're really not looking at your deal very closely. Right. And they're walking in and they're like, well, you should do this. And you're like, well, yeah, we already did that like a year ago. Um, or they, like the the paths that they take you on, at least for me, just didn't feel fruitful. It didn't feel like we had um, a team of allies in the room with us. It just felt very lonely um, and it felt very adversarial. And, you know, I was like, I, I again, I wanted to start a hobby with my second business. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start this and not raise money and prove that you can just start a company without raising money. And if it's small, it's small. I don't care. Little did I know that ButcherBox wanted to be a behemoth. Yeah. And, and, you know, we just kept going saying, like, let's not raise money, which has been a hard path for us. Uh, certainly a, a lot harder earlier on. But um, yeah, so we've, we've built this business and haven't raised a dime. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. 
And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Yeah, you know, something <laughs> I was in a session best practices thing recently, and someone was talking about it was a thing on board and board of advisors versus board of director and fiduciary board. And they said everyone who had a fiduciary board said that they were trying to get their board in and out of the building as fast as they could. <laughs> and everyone who had a non fiduciary advisory board was planning a whole day meeting and wanted to sit and brainstorm. And I right. just thought it was a very right. interesting viewpoint. Yeah, we have we have one of those. We have a non-fiduciary advisory board that we right. like to treat like a fiduciary board. It's a good practice, yeah. Yeah, because I I actually missed as I got going with ButcherBox when we got bigger and bigger. I missed having the intellectual like sparring with intelligent people who would call me on my bullshit without the "what are you doing with our money" part of the right, conversation. Right, it, and right? that yeah. part's gone. It's like yeah, <laughs> yeah, you actually didn't invest. Like you, you know, and that's been really really awesome, really freeing. Um, and, you know, so I, I mean, look, I think we got very lucky. We obviously, so we started with a Kickstarter campaign that worked really well. We went out to raise 25 grand, we raised 215 grand. And then we did like our revenue curve was like 5 million a year, 33 million a year, 103 million, 225, 450, 550. And we'll do about 600 this year. I, I mean, that, people talk about unicorns. Like I've always said, like, Look, I, I fully appreciate people who can scale these high growth companies, the wildly unprofitable ones. But I, <laughs> to some extent, turning a dollar into 50 cents is only so, you know, impressive right. to me. Like yeah. doing that with your own money, like it, doing that and losing, you know, a, as we see Carvana just almost declared it's going bankrupt today, yep, just doesn't yep. have a model that makes money. Uh, I, I mean, that is so much more impressive than any unicorn feed. And I, you know, I, I, I shared your story in, in my book, Moving to Outcomes, because I, I think it's an important thing for founders to understand. I mean, I mentioned like, we connected when you're just getting this thing going, and you were talking about, hey, how do I work with other people, maybe in this affiliate model, and it was a couple thousand in revenue a month. And I was like, well, there's not a lot we can do. And then I saw you at this thing a year later, and it was like 10x, you know, above that, probably in that first year, you were winning this, this award. You know, you figured out this way to scale by finding the people who had the reach with the customers you want and then paying them on a on an outcome basis. Can you talk yeah. about like how you fell into this? Because yeah. I think that was ultimately what made the flywheel work, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So again, we got into grass-fed beef because my wife and I were following all these elimination diets. And so we'd go online and learn about like anti-inflammation diet or, you know, paleo diet or these kind of like diets that are designed to have you eat whole foods, have you eat, um, you know, as clean, clean eating kind of whole 30 type stuff. And then I went on this journey of finding grass-fed beef so we could eat it and then et cetera. And where so, were you mostly finding it? I'm just curious. Uh, the grass-fed beef? Yeah. Um, I found a farmer in New York. Who so you were literally would, buying it from like a direct from a farmer. Yeah. And and it's actually technically illegal to sell over state lines. <laughs> so the, the farmer would uh, meet me in a parking lot with trash bags and I would put them into my car and drive off. And were you then reselling that to friends? Like, or were I you? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kind of like yeah. a, kind of like a drug dealer. Uh, so yeah. Uh, basically I bought like half a cow and that's like two black trash bags full of meat. It's just like too much meat. I didn't have, I had a, lived in the city. So I didn't have like a huge freezer. So I brought it to work and was like, who wants to buy some steaks? And people lined up and bought them. And they're like, oh, mm -hmm. this is great. Like grass fed beef from a farmer. Like that's really interesting. And actually, one of the guys at work was like, um, this would be so much easier if it was delivered to my house. And I was like, mm, yeah, that would be pretty easy. So um, that was the genesis of the idea. But going to the influencer, so you know, we had followed all these blog posts. And so when we started our Kickstarter, we reached out to a bunch of people and we we're like, hey, we started this company. And uh, the reason why we started is because we were following diets like yours. And 
you know, there wasn't, you didn't like tell anyone where they can buy this product. And so I built a company that because that they couldn't, as we learned, right? Right. <laughs> because you had, to, right. you had to go get Vinny with the trash bag of meat in the right, right. driveway. Yeah. There were a couple of companies that <laughs> did it, but it was very inefficient. It was very inefficiently done. Like they would overnight the package to you and whatnot. It just wasn't Got done at, at scale. Omaha Steaks is the only ones that had any scale, but they were commodity. They weren't like grass-fed, premium, whatever. Right. So we we reached out to those influencers, and one of them um, tweeted about us during our Kickstarter, and we just saw like a huge spike in people purchasing from that tweet. And so then we did um, we we just like leaned hard into the influencer. So we found every influencer possible of which there were hundreds and we uh reached out to all of them and we uh tried to get as many as possible to promote us and at the time we didn't have any money so this is like 2016 so uh, also influencer like the influencer market has completely changed over the yeah. past six years now, now they'd have you talk to their agent yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> and and their agent's like okay that's going to be twenty thousand dollars and yeah at this point, the influencers didn't necessarily know how valuable they their email list was or how valuable they were. Uh, but what we did is we didn't have any money. Um, so we're like, look, we can't pay you, but what we can do is pay you a residual. And so we, you know, we worked with uh, one of these cookie services to cookie up our website. And what would happen is we would have these influencers, um, they would sign up somebody. They, so they would send an email. We found that a dedicated email blast worked best. So they would send an email to their audience. You would track all the clicks through we track uh, all software. The clicks. Yeah. We gave them like a 60-day cookie window. And then yeah. those customers would sign up. So they could build like a residual book of business. Like, totally. And get yeah. loyal. This is like insurance or something where you just get a, yeah. you know, you yep. build up and, a book. And, and the and big get, guys were getting like ten dollars to $20,000 a month. Right. And you were just why, again, I, you know, this is what our company does for a living. I, I think that just so people understand in this sort of model and the performance oriented way that Mike's talking about it, you are paying for your marketing after you get the sale. Correct. We talk about how do you grow without cash? Very different than having to pay up front. Yes. <laughs> and then wait till you get the revenue. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I believe like marketing is like wildcatting for oil where you run around digging really small holes and then when you hit something, then you start building a rig and then a bigger rig and a Quickly bigger rig. before everyone comes rushing in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You extract it as fast as possible. So we built a huge influencer program very quickly, very aggressively. We we got everybody. But a performance influencer program. Because I Correct. think most of them today are, are not. Are not performance. Yeah. It can be very win-lose. Yeah. And frankly, like we don't... Uh, other than the people we kind of started with, like we don't get to do those types of deals anymore either. Like it, it, the whole game has changed. So why not, right? They made a lot of money. It's not like they got yeah. screwed in the deal. Like, no, is, totally. it, is it just a market dynamics of supply it's the and new demand. people yeah, yeah because yeah. they're like well like i get paid twenty thousand dollars to send an email i just right. why don't you just pay me twenty thousand dollars but do you think as someone who's really done this and and having had experience for this where look one of the things we notice is in the affiliate world which is all performance they're paid placements so yeah. someone would say hey let's do a paid placement you know and then you'd find out that they put you at the bottom or they Right. Like the, the incentive just switched a little bit. So when you send an email and you know you're getting paid a residual on things that people buy, or you send an email, you just know you're making 20 grand. There's a difference in how people approach that. Totally. Right? One, one of the other things we stumbled into with this residual, one, it kind of built a moat around our business. Because if you're like one of these paleo authors, like you're not going to tell people to buy from some other meat company. Right. So as competitors came online, which there are or have been a few competitors, like they were largely ignored by the influencer community because it's like, well, I already get this residual income stream. I'm not going to damage that. Right. And I've got two years of history with them. And right. Yeah. Totally. And two, um, people started to realize that if they could do anything to influence people staying, their residual would be bigger, right? Because not everyone stays on a subscription. We have churn people churn out. Yeah. So people started like, writing recipes with ButcherBox in it and sending that to their audience just to like keep them kind of engaged because they knew that if they could influence their churn rate, right, that would be better for them. And you also, which I think was really smart, you offered to put their recipes in your boxes, yes. right? If they were, yeah. yeah. That was our Trojan <laughs> horse, yes. Um, yeah, so early on what we did, and this actually came from the woodworking days, the way that we used to get woodworkers on our website at Custom Made is... We use like Mechanical Turk to do a whole bunch of like web scraping. 
And we'd have this field called the I love your field. And the I love your field was like, I love your Rosewood coffee table. And it would be like, hi, John, I was browsing yeah. the internet and I saw your website and I love your Rosewood coffee table. Would you like to join Custom Made? And what we did at, at ButcherBox is we were like, hi, we, we were browsing the internet. We're this new company. We're browsing the internet. We found this recipe and we really love this recipe. We want to include it in our box. Because at that time, we only sent a curated box. So we chose what goes in the box. Um, and then we added recipes to help the, inspire the person who's cooking it. So we're like, we'd love to include this recipe in our box on a little postcard. We'll put your name on it. Like we'll advertise you. Uh, are you okay with that? And for an influencer, like that's a definite yes. Like they're looking for exposure and distribution to like get their name out there. So they're like, yeah, absolutely. By the way, what's ButcherBox? And we're like, oh, funny you should ask this is what we do. And by the way, we have an influencer program and that worked really well. People were really excited about you buried the lead. working with us. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, a, a lot of people every day, I would say like someone re would reach out, some sales BD person. We're really interested in a partnership with your organization. This is the service we would like you to sell to all of your clients. You know, yeah. I'm like, that doesn't really sound like a partnership, right? I <laughs> it's just so simple to focus on what can you do to the other person. And look, those emails get deleted nine times out of 10. I used to joke with people when I send an email out of a partnership, I'd say, Hey, Mike, our clients are like constantly asking for the service that you provide and we don't provide it. Like, would you be interested in being part of our agency partnership so we can send them to you? You're definitely going to take that call, right? Not the, right. hey, Mike, I got some stuff I really want you to sell to your clients of, uh, of right. mine. Like, right. People have a very differentiated view on the word partnership. A lot of times it's what's in it for me. I mean, this was really kind of mutually beneficial. Yeah. And, and you know, like I think we, we had an approach of just holding everything lightly. And then when we found something that worked, just aggressively trying to go after it. But I, I mean, to be clear, like I don't really think we were like a bunch of marketing savants. Like I, I think we got really lucky. Um, I think the timing on influencers was like perfect. Could not have been better. And um, we just like found a a hole in the internet or an arbitrage and just wrote it as hard as we could. And then once we got kind of like, because what happens is yes, you're paying that residual, but you're getting more and more customers. And once we got enough customers. We had enough funds to then start like using Facebook or just advertising in the more traditional ways, which is a big component of what we do today. Is like you know your traditional paid media. Well, the other trend you've you've bucked is sort of survival of the subscription. Like I, yes. most of the subscription subscription economy Dead. has has fallen Dead. apart. Yes, and and because I. I I've unsubscribed. Like I had forty more razor blades than I needed. Like it's not. It wasn't <laughs> actually about. Uh, the you know offering the best experience to customers. It was about hey, investors love subscription businesses just like they love marketplaces. So let's right. flip everything into a, you know it's not a customer centric approach versus like your customers are eating this food every month and it's a consumable and food consumable things make sense to me as you know subscription. So talk about that trend. I mean because you were in the middle of it and yeah, you seem to yeah. like it's just utterly collapsed from what I can see. Yeah, well so in 2015 when we started the company and again I was like traumatized by my <laughs> my first experience in right. wanting to like not raise money even if it meant a small business. I just wanted recurring revenue. So at that point in 2015 is uh Blue Apron was like, you know, huge valuations was like the darling of Silicon Valley. Their last private round was, I believe in 2017, was at a $2 billion valuation. Yeah. And then they went public. And their stock collapsed yeah. very fast. Like Before the lockout was done, their stock was like nothing. It's now trading at $34 million valuation. It's still public at a $34 million. It's still public at a four. I don't know what's, I don't wow. know what's happening there. But wow. what happened, as soon as that happened, all of the venture capital for subscription-based businesses dried up. And so all of them scrambled and either sold. So like Plated sold to Albertsons, Green Chef sold to HelloFresh or, or went under. And and they were to be clear, they were unlike you. They were they were they were losing money, losing money on every every sale acquisition. But totally. yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes venture capital is like a game of musical chairs, and it's really fun until the music runs out, and then if you don't have a chair, you're screwed. Yeah. And so these companies, like if we had raised money to start ButcherBox, we would be out of business right now because we would have done the eighteen to twenty four month thing. Okay, we're looking for more money, and then the market had collapsed. Since we built a profitable business from the get-go, we just thrived during that time. There was a lot less competition in terms of people trying to get subscription businesses off the ground. 
And because we had to be profitable, profitable on the first box, everything we did from our marketing to our operations was geared towards like profit, 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 cash, cash, cash. And um, that kept the business going instead of killing. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, this is the thing that people don't understand. I was in a retail business years ago. And we opened in a unit and did really well. And then we opened a different unit and sort of another unit all at the same time. And then we raised a ton of money to open 10 more. I don't think we had proven out any one of these units. I mean, typically in the retail model, you know, you do a unit, you do a second, you're like, wow, the unit economics are amazing on these things. We understand the location, the setup, the size. Otherwise, let's do 10 of these. So we will lose money getting all of these things up to scale. However, we have a model that we know ends in a profitable you know, thing. Yeah. And I see way too many businesses, again, they enter the scale without figuring out the model that actually drives you know, value. I, you know, It seems like if you don't raise a lot of money early on, or you are forced to figure out what customers were paid, like this is a, this is a helpful for function, forced function in figuring out your initial store, whether it works or not, before you obfuscate that with opening a ton of stores. For so sure. our, our mistake was, I'll never forget, like we're opening more storefronts before we had a profitable model. It was almost right. like the SaaS version. And, and I think a lot of people are skipping that really important step, which is like, will people do they actually want what you provide at the price that you provide it for? Right. And that was kind of that, like I said before, like that was my experience with my first business um, was we did not have product market fit. And yet we were able to raise money. So then we just like lit up a fire trying to like make it work, but it yeah. was, we were just burning cash. And, you know, I think one of the big problems with the way that uh, the media has portrayed entrepreneurship is it's really now all about like how much money did you raise or like when are you raising money or what's your fundraising strategy? Which is like, um, can you imagine someone, a company saying we closed a hundred million credit line on our bank today and throw a party, you know, over <laughs> that or, or the debt that they raised? It is right. a weird phenomenon that you would celebrate the raising of the money and not what you do with the money. Well, uh, the reality is it's really easy to get the SEC report because when you when you raise money you have to like actually file paperwork at the SEC yeah. even if you're not public. And so a lot of these, you know, like a TechCrunch, not just TechCrunch, others, they just get a feed of all these people that raise money. So it's really easy to write the article. Now with like chat GPT, you could probably just be like, write me an article about whatever and boom, you're done. You could be like out there immediately. Yeah. And so what happens is if you start following the tech news, it's all about people who raised money. Yeah. And, you know, TechCrunch just did a wonderful article on us, which, you know, so I, I have to like change what I, what I say. Right. But um, and you feel bad about being a lifestyle business then? Yeah, right. right. Yeah. No, I feel bad. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, the other thing that is like you know, there's Shark Tank, which is on like every night. So now it's like you know, oh, you need to be like you need to go raise money, like go sell half your company to someone for a hundred grand. By the way, I just heard that the sharks are not net. One of the sharks, it was one or all, are not net positive ROI right, like on their deals money. yet. They're actually right. underwater now. Some of them aren't liquid yet. But given the 10x marketing advantage that you have from the show, that's a I know, pretty I know. telling it's stat. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, um, I think what it's done is it's caused people to think that the only path to running a company or being able to enjoy the benefits of entrepreneurship, which are many, is if you raise money. 
And the reality is when you raise money, what you do is you introduce fiduciary board members who have a point of view and want to make sure you don't lose your money and like all of these things. Which is understandable and want to make sure they get their money back. Which right? is to- yeah. totally understandable. Absolutely. <laughs> That's their job. Their job is to not lose their LP's money. But it introduces a whole bunch of things that I, I think people just like, they don't know there's a different path. And so like you and I met through EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, yeah. and now we're both part of YPO. Like the majority of people in EO, EO Boston, uh, which is a group of people with revenues over a million dollars, like they didn't raise money. Right. They, they bootstrapped something and it's like, you know, a pretty amazing lifestyle business or bigger. And, and, you know, kind of making sure it's a lifestyle business is really a big part of, of the conversation. Define lifestyle. Again, this is where I think it gets. Yeah. Okay. My definition of lifestyle business, like, so. I um I like to say that I started uh this business was supposed to be a hobby and I failed miserably at creating a hobby business. Yeah. But when I actually think about it like I didn't fail at making a hobby business like this is still a hobby. Why is it a hobby or a lifestyle business? Um I don't really have anyone to answer to. I mean I have our our employees, I have our members, I have you know, but I I don't have like a board I need to answer to. I get to do what I want to do. I get to work on the things I want to work on. Uh, we've built a profitable model. So w- while we're always worried about our numbers, we're not like, you know, wringing our hands about our numbers yeah, uh, or worried about our cash balance. And I can build the business around my lifestyle. Is that a closely held business though? Like, is that, is that? Yeah, like, it could be, it, or it could just be boundaries. Cause you could be, you could be working a hundred hours a day. Right. But you just have the choice to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it comes down to boundaries too. It's yeah. like kind of the second lie I think about entrepreneurship is this idea that you need to work like 24, seven, 365. That's bullshit. Like that's not actually the, the most successful people I know are people who are like, yeah, I work, I work super hard when I'm working, but I do a lot of play. I'm home for dinner. I'm like, you know, I do a lot of other things. It's not just about working. Well, it's interesting you use that word success, right? Because some some of the successful people are divorced. Their kids don't talk to them. Their health is crap, right? So, right. so they have one metric of success, but I'm not sure maybe looking back if that feels all successful, if you just, you know, <laughs> went down that one course. Right, right. And I and I had this experience in my first company. Um, I I gave that thing every like I, I gave it my all and I sacrificed time, my health, my friends, my family. I, you know, was was in almost every Saturday. I just worked my butt off. And the reality is it didn't work. And like I'm not like, oh man, I should have worked harder. I'm I'm kind of like, I wish I didn't take it so seriously because well, did you pay a price? Did your body pay a price for that? Like, yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, I mean, yeah. gained a bunch of weight. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. So, so what's next? Like, when you bootstrap something to 500, 600 million dollars, I'm sure people are calling you private equity. Like, yep. Yep. you know, do you are you're starting new businesses? I know you guys had a, a I think a smoothie. Uh, spinoff, right? So what yeah. what do you do from from here? I mean, it's, it's almost like you won the lottery. Yeah, yeah what do <laughs> you, know, you do? What, what do you do? Do you cash yeah. in the ticket or do you keep it going? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I always preface this by saying that like I don't have any offer at the, on the table, right? Uh, I do get a lot of private equity people reaching out and I'm always like, no, we're not interested. Um, and I, I don't have like a genuine, you know, like... I don't know. Amazon wants to buy us. Like that's yeah. never happened. So I can speak with confidence, but we have to, you know, have a little grain of salt with it. So when I've looked at iconic food brands, and that's what I believe we have the opportunity to build. Like I would to take a step back, I believe our opportunity is to build a brand in meat that's known for doing things right. Uh, meat, if you think about meat, it's a multi-hundred billion dollar market. Um, and there really aren't brands. Like there are a few brands, but the most brands that people know like are things that they don't eat. It's like, oh, I know Spam or I know Butterball. That's it's like, like an Intel inside sort of model, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so um, actually the the best known brand in meat is like Certified Angus, but yeah. that's not even a brand that's genetics. Uh, my friend worked for a place years ago in California. Oh, now blinking on the name but it it was one of the first ones where the restaurants would put it the name on the menu yeah uh, of what kind yeah. of meat it was then your point like that's right. that yeah. doesn't happen that often that doesn't happen very often and if diamond it, ranch that was it yep yeah 
And if you think about like actually what meat has done the best job branding themselves over the past 10 years, it's actually impossible and beyond meat. It's two mm-hmm. non-meat companies that proved that you could like actually brand something. They've they've also proved the Beyond has proved the what we lose on every uh yeah. package we make up in volume. Yeah. That's right. Um so I believe the opportunity for Butcher Box is to be a brand, a brand in meat that's known for doing things right. That we went to the nth degree to make sure that whatever we're serving you, whether it's chicken, pork, uh, seafood, beef, um, you know, that it's like done to right, it's fully transparent, it's humanely certified, it's antibiotic hormone free and all the other things that, that we do. And like we obsess about all those details. So you don't have to as a customer, you can just trust our brand to do it for us. Like the, the Patagonia of meat is like my favorite example. Right. When when I buy a Patagonia jacket, like I know they obsessed about the thread and where it came from. I don't really need to know all the details. I just know that they did it. So I I feel good about it. So that's what I believe the opportunity is. Now if it, to your question of what's next, like if you look at iconic food brands, they all have a very similar background the big ones, um, privately held, uh, largely either by one family or by family and employees, uh, 100 years old or multi-decades old, and largely like not public. Maybe like a portion of it went public, but usually it's just like a privately held type of situation. And so when I look at like, okay, what are our benchmarks and where do we want to be? If we want to be an iconic brand of food, I think the play here is to just keep going. Right. So like what does Butcher Box look like in 25 years is is a question that I ask myself. And I think it's it's really fun. It's like very freeing to not be thinking about like what are we doing this month, which I also think about, but like what's the arc of this over my right. lifetime? And what it allows you to do is to start uh, initiatives that you would never start otherwise. It's like, well, we could do that, but that might take seven years. And it's like, okay, well, we should start now because, you know, we might as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like a family office. There's no yeah. time pressure. Yeah. There's there's no time pressure. And we we feel a lot of pressure, but it's all self, like self-directed pressure. Yeah. I was just saying to another CEO, I think the biggest frustration for many business leaders today as someone who I try to think about the future a bit, like is that the world is like three month increments now. Like, you you, yeah. you know, everyone has to focus on the here yep. and now. And a lot of that's because of their capital constraints and structure. They can't focus on yep. <laughs> even the second half of next year. So I, I believe in order to do meat right in this country, in order to transform meat, which is our mission, you need a ton of patience and you need a long-term horizon. And so that's how I operate the company. And that's how I think about things. You know, like if somebody came by and, you know, was like, I'll buy and here's a massive check. And we believe that they could take our our mission and do something better with it. Like, sure, um, we'd be open to that. I don't know what I would do. And quite frankly, I'd probably just start something else and then be chasing this thing, right? It'd be like... And the reality is that this is the the growth is so staggering to do be able to do this without taking funding is it's such an, a a huge amount of growth. Like I I don't think I could ever recreate this. Like I just think I would start something else and be like, okay, this is not Butcher Box. Like what's next? Um, so you know, I think the question for me as an entrepreneur becomes like, okay, if this is a multi generation hold, like what do I want to do every day? How do I keep this as a hobby business or a lifestyle business? Like, what are the things that I want to be involved in? What are the things I don't want to be involved in anymore? And how do I like get people around me so that I'm doing the stuff that I'm really great at? You know, like a zone of genius work, like the stuff that I'm a genius at, and just not do anything else. Uh, and that's a that's a quite the endeavor, but one that I continue to try to I continue to try to strip away the things that I'm bad at and just focus on the things that I'm decent at. Well, you have the freedom to play chess, so you should you should play chess. Um, so, last question for you: This can be singular, repeated, personal, or professional. But what's what's a mistake you've made in your life or career that you've learned the most from? So, I uh, I, I said at the very beginning of the podcast, my uh, parents got divorced when I was four months old. My mom moved up, and I never really saw my dad again. Um, I did a couple times, but like I, I never really like had a relationship with him. And I was always the boy who believed that his dad was coming home, and he never did. And so I had this like deep abandonment wound where, you know, I'm afraid people are going to lose me or leave me, which, you know, is in my personal life. Like my wife is, you know, wants a little bit of freedom and I'm like, oh my God. Um, 
and at work, I think certainly my first company and in this company, at times I've been very reluctant to give feedback to people, even though like I know like, okay, this isn't working or like we need to change this. I'd be very reluctant to give feedback to people because I was afraid they were going to leave me. Wow. Yeah, and it's it's pretty funny. I joke about it now, but if somebody if somebody sees me in the hall and they're like, "Hey, can we talk for five minutes?" I'm like, "Oh shit, they're going." <laughs> they're like, I, "I don't." I it's just like a, a yeah. reflexive, and they're like, "Oh, like you know, we have to fix this thing or whatever." And it's like, "Oh, okay, I thought you were leaving." Like, um, so I, I'm still constantly bracing for the abandonment, and um, you know, as I as I get older and process my, you know, my abandonment wound and my father wound and all that stuff. I'm, I realize how much it has hijacked, uh, the way that I operate in the world and the way I operate in business. Well, look, thank you for sharing that. And I, I think not only is that probably helpful to some people and they can resonate with it, but maybe it encourages the look. I think we all have some of those things that come out of deep <laughs> formative experiences yeah. that were other people can tell us they're there, but, but we're not as quick to to see them. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's right. All right, Mike. So where can people learn more about you, ButcherBox? Where should they go? Yeah. So uh, if anyone has any follow-up questions, they can uh, email me at CEO at ButcherBox.com. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Mike Salguero, which I do some writing uh, rarely, but uh, I definitely try to get into the fray every once in a while. That email is the compliment department only, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. It's been, it's been awesome to watch your story and, and hear more hear more about it directly. Thank you. And thank you for the help that you've, you and your, your firm have done in, uh, in that process. Great. Well, Mike, uh, you can learn more about Mike and ButcherBox on the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and hear more from amazing people like Mike. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.